0: Welcome to the Court of Appeals on this beautiful fall day. I'm Judge Valerie Zachary. To my right is Judge April Wood, and to my left is Judge Michael Stadding. To your right is our court clerk, Gene uh, Soar, and our uh, security officer, uh, Richard Remillard, with the Capitol Police. This afternoon, we're going to hear the case of Land versus Whitney. Whitley from Pitt County. Counsel, are you ready to proceed? Yes, Your Honor. Okay. Hey, before we start, have you worked out with uh, Mr. Soar uh, with your time and how much rebuttal time you'll have?
1: Yes, Your Honor, three minutes.
0: Three minutes? Yes, okay, great.
1: May it please the court. I am Chris Smith on behalf of the appellants. If I may, please, I have four minutes of framing comments for the court. Appellants win on both issues in this case. They win on 9 j because it requires a strict construction and plaintiffs acknowledge they don't meet it. Appellants win on the Emergency Act under one, it's plain, broad text, and two, for the separate reason that the Emergency Act requires a liberal construction which plaintiffs refuse to accept. We agree with plaintiffs that the Emergency Act provides a quote, limited immunity for healthcare providers protecting them from liability for ordinary negligence if its three requirements are met. The three requirements are at section 133A1, A2, and A3 of the Act. They are simple, they are met here. Subsection A1 is first, it requires that the healthcare services services, plural, were delivered during the COVID emergency. It is met here, except our friends on the other side and Miki make the odd suggestion that there is a fact issue for trial, whether, as pled by them and admitted below, Dr. Whitley is in fact a doctor and Viden Hospital is in fact a hospital. Subsection A2 is second. It requires that the, quote, arrangement or provisions of healthcare services, plural, services, is impacted directly or indirectly by the COVID pandemic. This case occurred at the chaotic onset of the plague. The affidavits accepted by the trial court are conclusive. The plague impacted the delivery of healthcare services, plural, in this matter. We all remember the disruption to virtually every aspect of our lives then. Subsection A3 is third. It requires that the healthcare services, plural, were delivered in good faith. Our friends will not give the grace of presumption of good faith to our healthcare heroes.
2: Can you point to where in your affidavits you even argue good faith?
1: Uh, Your Your Honor, there is not a a statement of good faith in the affidavits because the law presumes good faith. That's the established law of this court in the Shannon versus Teston matter, which requires that in order to overcome a statutory immunity instance like this, um, good faith is presumed unless there are specific facts, fraud-like facts, as this court held in Shannon versus Teston in a decision by Judge Deeds, fraud-like facts, actual pled facts in good faith to overcome the legal presumption of good faith.
2: And don't the plaintiffs allege gross negligence, which is an exemption under the statute that you're trying to see community under?
1: Uh, Your Honor, yes, they assert what we would label as the two magic words from their perspective of gross negligence. But, Your Honor, jumping ahead, if I may then, to address the issue of gross negligence and how, essentially, if this court permits just the mere conclusory, invocation of those two words, appended to ordinary claims of negligence, we would then be vaporizing, and I don't use that verb lightly, we would be vaporizing the unanimous public policy of this state passed by the General Assembly, contrary to our friend's desire, which is to ask this court to rewrite the statute.
2: use more words than just magic words of gross negligence. Don't they actually set forth what happened during the surgery and the post-op and the fact that the doctor didn't even perform a physical exam during the post-op, didn't touch the plaintiff during post-op when she was complaining about pain in her abdomen? I mean, don't they set forth things from which they could um, have a claim for gross negligence?
1: no, Your Honor. There are certainly things said in the briefing, but if we go to the complaint, which is what before, what is before the court here. Um, first, looking at record page 11, paragraph 59 is what I'll be directing the court to, record pages 11 and 12. Paragraph 59 begins, Dr. Whitley violated the duty she owed to Doris by And then turning to record verse, by, and then turning to record page 12, there is a list of a number of items from A through G in in paragraph 59 of the complaint. That is it, Your Honors.
0: Well, didn't they also allege in, in paragraph 60 that the, that the failures and violations of the standard of care were negligent, careless, reckless, and grossly negligent?
1: Yes, Your Honor. And I'll get exactly to that issue and why that is deficient under the law.
0: Well, because okay. Because if, if I
1: may, Your Honor, yes, you, please. the law from this court is quite clear on the high burden, high hurdle, and the burden to establish a claim for gross negligence. This court, in the green case, which our friends on the other side do not engage with, and do not even acknowledge the case, the green case, which is the law of this court, says to establish, and this is the framing issue here for these two magic words. And again, remember, our friend's theory just by invoking those two words and appending them to ordinary claims of negligence, and we'll go through those, doing that is enough to blow through the unanimous public policy of the state entered at the time that it was.
0: Is a North Carolina a notice-pleading state?
1: Yes, and I'll address that as well, Your Honor, in going through the specific Uh, allegations of paragraph 59. First, to set the headwaters, the sort of intellectual analytical headwaters of what must be in a complaint in order to, in good faith, with actual facts, allege gross negligence. And remember, the statute, the way it is structured at section 133 Section 133, which provides the immunity in subsection A. Subsection B is where Your Honor's questions about the gross negligence exception arise from. Gross negligence is an exception to the immunity conferred once it is conferred. So you must have facts, much like in a public official setting, facts to allege a basis to invoke the gross negligence exception. And to come back and answer Your Honor's questions directly, I said that the intellectual framework to look at this is this court's binding authority in the Green case. And Green established in that case, which has, by the recitation of the court, plenty of negligence in it but not gross negligence. And the reason there's no gross negligence is because to establish gross negligence, settled law requires that, quote, the act is done purposely and with knowledge that such act is a breach of duty to others. That is a conscious disregard of the safety of others. So in order to invoke subsection B and strip back the immunity conferred by subsection A, you must have facts pled in good faith that rise to that level. If you don't, you cannot, just by invoking the conclusory two-word adjective phrase, gross negligence, undo the unanimous public policy created over there. Turning to the So
0: so what's the significance of sub G in the paragraph that you uh, had up before where it says other acts? I believe it was G. I'm just relying on my memory. It's,
1: if we could have it up on the screen, you're correct, Your Honor. Um, so looking at paragraph 59, A through G, Noting, G says, your honor, other negligence as may be determined through discovery. But the important point here, your honor, is if we look at A through G, they all talk merely about inadvertence, negligence, failing to safely blah, 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 failing to blah, 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 nothing nothing that rises to the level of conscious disregard of the safety of others. And we know that that's a high bar, and it's meant to be a high bar, and the General Assembly intended for it to be a high bar. So, Your Honor, to see the sort of intellectual dissonance between the complaint and the law We look at A through G, and we simply see failing this, failing that. And then we get in paragraph 60, the conclusory, vaporizing, two-word allegation that the above is grossly negligent. That simply is not enough under any standard. And it's not enough under our notice-pleading standards, nor is it enough under the circumstances of this important emergency legislation. Is, it, is if, the
0: allegation of proximate cause insufficient as well? Because it doesn't, it, they don't say a lot about that. If you're looking as paragraph 61, I think, because my, my screen's gone blank.
1: Um, the screen has gone off.
0: There you go, when you touch it, it'll. Yeah. And, uh, Let's
1: see. Uh, I Hon- can't
0: move it up, but if you go up, maybe to sixty. Sixty-one. Where is it? No, it's sixty. Accident emissions constitute approximate cause of Doris's injuries, subsequent hospitalization, surgeries, and disabilities. Um,
1: uh, Your Honor, I, I appreciate the court's point. Um, uh, the ink is what it is on that, um, and it has its limitations. But the fundamental problem under the Act, the Emergency Act, is that we first have the issue of conferring the immunity, and I want to walk you through the statute in a moment, under subsection A. All those standards are met. To then pull the immunity back, to peel it back, there must be factual allegations that meet the threshold of this court's law in green, which the folks over there were aware of when they drafted this exception in subparagraph B to the immunity conferred by by subparagraph A?
0: Oh, I think, you know, I think everyone would agree that that was important legislation that our legislature passed um, at the beginning of the COVID pandemic. where we didn't know what was gonna happen and there, was, you know, there were fears you know, that we would have overrun hospitals and you know, like something you'd see in a movie. Um, in this case, how did the COVID precautions affect Ms. Land's care?
1: Yes, Your Honor, at record pages 62 to 74 are the affidavits of Dr. Whitley and Dr. Lindbeck. Dr. Lindbeck is the chief of staff at the Vidant uh, Surge Center. Those affidavits are comprehensive, and each, the last paragraph, explains how the itemization of how COVID, and again, we're talking about June and July of 2020, when people were worried if they could get COVID from their dog, Um, when doctors and nurses were refreshing their wills because nobody understood what was happening with what I call the plague the COVID-19 ep- pandemic. The affidavits are really pretty simple on this. The, the systemic impact on the delivery of health care at these facilities is set forth at record 62 to 74. Each paragraph.
0: Can you give me some examples of how this that affected this woman's care?
1: Sure. Well, so big picture staffing is cut in half. But in terms of, and again, affecting the moment of alleged medical malpractice is what our friends on the other side would say that this statute requires, that's absolutely wrong. But we meet that, we meet that requirement or that ask, in any event, this way. Um, firstly, in order for the plaintiff to have had her surgery, it required a special proceeding. This is set forth in Dr. Whitley. The the
0: encephalization?
1: Uh, encephalization I I was referring to something else. I was referring to an administrative matter, which is in order for her to be authorized and Dr. Whitley to be authorized to perform a surgery on her, there had to be, as explained in Dr. Lindbeck's affidavit, a convening of of a special group to determine can we, under these circumstances, go forward? It's completely out of the ordinary for anything like that. That's direct impact here. To Your Honor's point about the question about laparoscopy and insufflation, mm-hmm. yes, that is set forth in both Dr. Whitley's affidavit and Dr. Lindbeck's affidavit, that at the time, there was concern that one of the tools that can be used in this procedure of a total vaginal hysterectomy Taking going laparoscopic, that that was then a no-no essentially because of the concern of insufflation, which is when things can get aerosolized. I'm not a, a physician, but I understand that that risk is how it was explained. But, yeah,
0: and I understand and aerosolized. So. Um, but but isn't that didn't they do an at- a laparoscopic um, procedure on her in the ER?
1: Uh, Because they went
0: in, you know, to try and see what was going on with her, and then they couldn't do it because there was so much purulent matter.
1: Your Honor, I think you're referring to a subsequent when... um, Right, a subsequent
0: uh, ER visit.
1: And Your Honor, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, I can't, in an informative way, discuss the medicine at that point, Okay, but what I, well, can, I, I, dem- okay. what I can demonstrate, what I think is very important for this court to walk away from and to know from this discussion, is how our friends on the other side want this legislation to be rewritten, as opposed to what the General Assembly said. Well, a
0: said. question I have is, how did the COVID precautions affect her follow-up care? I mean, you were talking about staffing cut in half. Was that in, in the, in the doctor's office was, was it, you know, did they have staff cuts or, I mean, is there some reason that the COVID precautions affected her care then? I understand the affecting her care in the OR. Sure.
1: But uh, I, so I don't
0: understand the care or follow-up care.
1: Your honor, just uh, one easy example. Um, "You could not bring another with you to a medical appointment." And Dr. Whitley talks about the impact of that. Patients came alone, and that affects, and has impact on the quality of the interchange between the doctor and the patient. And that's documented in the record at 64.: So
0: what happened 70. here? What happened here as a result of that?
1: Uh, What happened here as a result of that is that she came alone. She came alone. There were uh, other examples, staffing reduced, masks. But, Your Honor, if I may, these are the questions that our friends want the court to ask and to be focused on. I would like the court to be focused on, if I may, the text of the statute and what the General Assembly actually did.
0: But doesn't the text say where it's directly or indirectly affected by?
1: Precisely.
0: I mean, and so I don't think, I don't think I'm trying to rewrite a statute here. I'm just asking questions that I think are, that are consonant with the statute.
1: Yes, Your Honor. And directly or indirectly is one of the requirements of 133A2, and that is met readily as demonstrated um, by the affidavits on file indirectly is not a long reach and directly is something that is met here.
2: I think and it's- to follow up a little bit on what Judge Zachary is asking with as far as the post-op care, I mean, it paragraph 26 and 27 and 28, and the plaintiff's complaint lays out that after she had the... Um, the procedure that she then went back for a post-op care and, and that the doctor actually wrote that her abdomen was soft, non-tender, non-distended, active bowel sounds, and um, described the trouble she had performing the TVH procedure, but that the doctor didn't examine her at all, didn't touch her, didn't examine her, and just prescribed her more, um, I think, oxycodone for even despite the fact that she said she was having... Um, you, problems with bowel movements. And so I think that's kind of her thing. Isn't gross negligence a exemption under the statute under which you're trying to get immunity? And can't we infer from what they're alleging that there was gross negligence here?
1: No, no, and no. Um, the, w- what Your Honor just referred to, just for purposes of this discussion, we could assume is a- inadvertence is negligence. We can assume that for purposes of this discussion. But
0: don't, the, don't but that, the record say something different?
1: Excuse me, Your Honor?
0: Don't the record say something different from what the plaintiff alleges happened in that follow-up visit?
1: Your Honor, I am arguing this case based off the complaint okay. um, and feel bound by the complaint. Um, okay. The With respect to Your Honor's question about whether That could constitute gross negligence. I think the question the the court needs to answer in the affirmative is that, I mean, there's no, there couldn't be an allegation of intentional wrongdoing there. Maybe there's a mistake. Um, But the bar for gross negligence is, as mentioned before, knowledge that such act is a breach of duty to others, a conscious disregard of the safety of others. And I don't, in fairness, see how anything in this case, whether it's the complaint or the medical record at large, one could infer a conscious disregard well, for the safety of a if patient. if the
2: doctor alleges and writes that the abdomen is soft, non-tender, uh, non-distended and active bowel sense how does the doctor know that if the doctor doesn't actually physically touch the patient? Just by observation? How, how would you know that? I mean, it seems as though there is an <clears throat> allegation that the doctor wrote these things without actually verifying them. Because the plaintiff alleges the doctor didn't perform any physical exam, didn't even touch her. Uh, y-
1: Your Honor, uh, so... Conflict between the allegations in the complaint and the medical record? Um, We're just looking I, at
2: just the complaint. In the complaint, it seems to allege that the doctor wrote something that wasn't true, is how you can infer that. And couldn't that be a conscious disregard?
1: I, Your Honor, I don't see anything in this complaint. Um, and respectfully, I, I, I don't. I, don't see anything in the complaint from which one could infer a healthcare worker with a bad heart. Uh, And that's what we would have to be talking about in order for there to be sufficient factual allegations to peel back the immunity conferred by subsection A. And if I may. Which is
0: like what I'd like to get back to is the Provision of healthcare services, and whether they were impacted directly or indirectly by the COVID pandemic, and I, if you can just explain to me how this Ms. Land's follow-up care was affected by the COVID pandemic,
1: Your Honor, uh, I, I don't. W- I'm not able to go through the whole affidavit for Dr. Whitley or Dr. Lindbeck right now. Um, And there are a few points that I do think I I, I would like to be sure to make with the court. But Dr. Whitley goes through the indirect, overwhelmingly indirect, as well as direct impact on this case. Does she tell
0: how they affected Ms. Land?
1: She does. And at paragraph 22 of her affidavit, she writes, swears the challenges of COVID-19 and all of the steps and procedures described in this affidavit undertaken in response to COVID-19 impacted my and Greenville OBGYN's arrangement and provision of health care, including to Mrs. Land. Dr. Lindbeck, the chief of staff at Biden, has a similar concluding paragraph after he goes through what he described were the systemic, um, as well as the direct impact well, on delivery of care
0: That seems like kind of a conclusory statement to me, and I'm wondering if there are any specific facts relating to How Ms. lands care was was affected
1: and your honor I, I would respectfully suggest to the court that those that evidence the actual facts are included in the affidavits and they're long and and um, uh, record pages 62 to 74, where that evidence is. And Your Honors, if I may, please just make the, um, show to the court the attempt to rewrite the legislation and in doing so, explain for the court how broad the policy decision made by our elected leaders representing 10.4 million North Carolinians and what they did unanimously. Again, we view this as fundamentally a separation of powers case, with our friends wanting you to rewrite the ink that the General Assembly drafted. Um, and if I may, Judge, first, showing the court at page record page 145, at section 132.8, the definition of healthcare services. It's defined as, and you remember in my opening um, framing comments, I was referring to healthcare services treatment, clinical direction, supervision, management, or administrative or corporate service provided by a healthcare facility or a healthcare provider during the COVID 19 emergency declaration. That is language that my mother would describe as soup to nuts. It pulls in everything. That is the definition of healthcare services. That definition, Your Honors, importantly, is never engaged with by the plaintiffs. They pretend it doesn't exist. And you're
0: into your rebuttal time.
1: Yes, Your Honor. And just very briefly, um, uh, in, into my rebuttal time, um, noting the structure here at 133A and B. A, the immunity is conferred if the three predica- predicates, one, two, and three, are satisfied. One, of course, we have health care providers here. Uh, two, record pages 62 to 74, and the, it focuses on the arrangement or provision delivery of health care services, not health care. That's all the, the plaintiffs talk about in their briefing is health care. Care, We're talking about the statutory definition of uh, the creation of the immunity and what's required to remove it. Three, that the healthcare facility, that the healthcare actors were acting in good faith, that the controlling law of this court is Shannon versus Teston. Um, and we've had uh, a good discussion about gross negligence. Thank you, Your Honor. So I'll reserve the balance of my time.
0: Thank you. You've been a good sport with a hot bench.
1: Thank you.
3: (laughs) Good afternoon, Your Honors. May it please the court. I am Mary Ann Hamilton, appearing with co-counsel Bruce Berger on behalf of FLEs, Doris, and Elliot Land. Your Honor, my colleague has used some dramatic language here, uh, accusing us of vaporizing an immunity and rewriting a statute but you can't vaporize a thing that doesn't exist, and as we will show, there is no immunity in this case at this point. Um, Similarly, their reading of Rule 9j is far too draconian and does not at all accord with the the law of this court or of the North Carolina Supreme Court. Um, To begin with, I want to address the affidavits since my colleague relies so heavily upon them. As we objected at trial and as we briefed, both in the motion to dismiss this appeal and in our appellate briefing, those affidavits were improperly and untimely submitted and should not have been considered. Now, the trial court is not clear in their order about whether they did consider those affidavits or not, but I would point out that even if they did consider the affidavits, they considered those affidavits and still dismissed the appeal. I mean, I'm still gr- denied the motion to dismiss.
0: And your, your argument is that they shouldn't have been considered because they were not... Um Submitted in a timely manner? That is correct, Your Honor, under the rules of civil procedure, under the rules of these courts.
3: Um, Now, if they were considered, then the motion to dismiss was was converted to a summary judgment motion, and we should have been given an opportunity to have some discovery and present our own evidence in a summary judgment context. Well,
0: is that that necessarily true? And I mean, you know, in Rule 12b, 12b6, of course, you know, you cannot always introduce extra material um, beyond the allegations of the complaint, but you know, 12b-1, you can. Um, I believe 12b-2, you can, can't you? In uh, 12b-1,
3: your honor, respectfully, cannot be appealed, and a denial under 12b-1 is not appealable. So that's kind of beyond the scope of this discussion. But you can. But you can submit extra
0: material. You can in some cases. I mean, you could have a whole evidentiary hearing on it, can't you? You can, in some,
3: you can in some cases, but in those cases, the plaintiff also gets an opportunity to respond. And as late as these affidavits were submitted, we had no opportunity to respond. If you're going to convert the proceeding in that way, it has to be done in a way that is just and fair. And that did not occur here. And so we would argue they should not even be part of the discussion.
0: Because you only got two days' notice on this, right? Yes, as, Your Honor. As, a, as opposed to the requisite five?
3: Yes, Your Honor. And, in fact, the motions to which they were supposed to have been attached were actually submitted months before the hearing. So there's no, I, there's no clear reason why those affidavits were submitted so late.
0: Okay. What, what facts do you allege uh, support your allegation that the doctor was grossly negligent? Uh, your Honor, we would point,
3: actually, to the same facts that you pointed out. And since we're on the gross negligence topic, let me also point out that there are two cases that could be called green that my colleague briefed that address gross negligence. Both of those cases were decided at summary judgment. When the courts were talking about what facts had to be produced, they were talking about after the plaintiff had had an opportunity for discovery, and after both sides had had a chance to put forward all of the evidence they could gather. Those were not cases at motion to dismiss, and we're at a very different place in the proceedings here with a very
0: different standard for review. But you still have to be able to survive motion to dismiss um, or, you know at 12b6 you know does you, is your complaint does your complaint make the sufficient allegations yes Your Honor our complaint does we would
3: point first of all as um, I believe it Judge Wood did to uh, uh, paragraphs 26 and 27 on record page 8 where we discuss how the doctor recorded a note that makes it sound like she examined Ms. Land but she did not ever touch Ms. Land and that's in the complaint that is in the complaint in paragraphs 26 and 27 Um, She recorded, Ms. Land told her that she was in significant abdominal pain. She recorded only that Ms. Land was struggling with constipation and her only response to Ms. Land's complaints was to prescribe more oxycodone. She did not investigate the reasons for the ongoing pain or try to establish whether it was in fact unusual. She simply dismissed it. Um, And then again, we have the list of ways that we feel that the doctor was negligent in paragraph 59 My colleague would like to dismiss those as ordinary negligence, but he doesn't get to do that, Your Honor. And with respect, at this point in the proceedings, neither do you. Our courts have been clear that where gross negligence is adequately pleaded, a plaintiff gets an opportunity for discovery, and if at summary judgment, any genuine issue of material fact remains, any question remains at all, the plaintiff gets a trial on that issue. The the question of whether a, a negligent behavior rises to the level of gross negligence, is by our Supreme Court's decision, a question for the fact finder, that is the jury. Uh, So to dismiss on a question of gross negligence at the motion to dismiss stage would be fairly extraordinary and would represent the imposition in the context of this immunity of what is essentially a heightened pleading standard. Would require plaintiffs to plead stuff that they could not possibly know at this stage in proceedings. and you know we have a rule
0: for heightened pleading standards. Well, wh- why couldn't why couldn't plaintiffs know this at this at this um, at this juncture? If you have to have all of the medical records prior to filing the complaint, wouldn't you have all the information or most of most of the information at uh, 12b-6? Uh, Your Honor, we would have some of the
3: information. We have the records they handed over. We have the records we were able to obtain after reasonable inquiry. We have not had a chance to depose the doctor herself. We have not had a chance to depose the doctor who was also in the operating room. We, there's other sources of evidence that we have not had a chance to investigate. Uh, and you know, in, in the course of putting together a case this early, you do what you have to do to get past the motion to dismiss stage, which is what we've done, um, and you move on and get to discovery to substantiate the allegations that you make in the complaint.
0: Do you concede that that Ms. Land's health care treatment was impacted directly or indirectly by the um, COVID pandemic?
3: No, Your Honor, we do not. Um, And furthermore, we argue that my colleagues have not shown that. The appellants have not shown that. We are not trying to rewrite a statute. What we are saying is that if they're going to plead the immunity, they should be required, as we are required when we plead gross negligence, to provide facts in support of each and every element of that immunity. And what they have done is provided a conclusory pleading that says, yes, we're a hospital, of course we're a hospital. That says, yes, she's a doctor who falls under this definition, of course she's a doctor who falls under this definition. That says, here's a long list of facts about the things we did to address COVID and you're supposed to infer the connection to Ms. Land's care. And Your Honors, at this stage, the inferences don't go in that direction. At the motion to dismiss stage, the inferences go in favor of the plaintiffs. So if they have not pleaded specifically that this change due to COVID affected Ms. Land's care in that way, they have done nothing more than present the same conclusory pleading they have accused us of providing.
0: I, you maintain that defendants have to prove their good faith, uh, how, how would defendants do that?
3: Your Honor, they have to at least present facts to support it. Um, The good faith question is one that was actually, ironically, raised by defendants. We did not plead bad faith, they raised it in the motion to dismiss. And then, of course, we responded as we are required to do in our response to their motion to dismiss. Um, That said, this leads onto the point that my colleague made about Shannon V. Teston. That case, we argue, is not really apropos of the issues in this case for a number of reasons. Um, First of all, not only Did uh, Mr. Shannon not specifically allege bad faith? He didn't allege much at all, and some of the things he alleged actually admitted good faith. At the motion to dismiss stage, this is one of those instances where the complaint itself reveals facts that defeat the claim. The other difference between Shannon V. Teston and this case is that the statute itself is differently structured. In that statute, uh, the statute, that statute is worded in such a way that the good faith is presumed. And that is how this court read it, that this good faith was presumed. But in the, the, COVID, the COVID statute, the good faith is an element of the claim. It's in the list given the same status as the other elements. And that suggests that it is not something that this court should presume, but that the other side should have to present some kind of credible evidence at least I would say of the absence of bad faith. Um, And then that gets into an argument about the definition of bad faith. And we would agree with your honor's comment that gross negligence approaches bad faith. The recording of stuff in the record that does not reflect the patient's experience approaches bad faith. But we are not required to specifically plead it because it is part of an immunity which is an affirmative defense. And plaintiffs are not required to plead around an anticipated affirmative defense. In fact, Vernon V. Christ, a 1977 North Carolina Supreme Court case advises plaintiffs not to do that. It says the better pleading practice is not to anticipate the the affirmative defense. So if you require us to plead in anticipation of immunity, you're also requiring us to plead in anticipation of contrib, for instance. And so, we feel that Shannon V. Teston actually is not the ruling law in this case,
0: because If the the defendants can't show that they have immunity under this statute, are they entitled I mean, is that a substantial right entitling them to um, appellate review of an interlocutory order?
3: No, Your Honor. If the immunity has not attached, and if they have not shown... um, The law of this court shows, if they have not shown that they satisfy every element, the immunity has not attached. It does not exist. And if the immunity does not exist, this appeal must be dismissed because it is an interlocutory appeal that is not ripe for review because there is no substantial right at issue. I would point, Your Honors, to Stahl v. Bowden, a case from 2020 at the summary judgment point. So this court sent a case with an immunity argument to trial because the elements had not been appropriately proved. Um, Similarly, Snyder v. Learning Services A 2018 case, again, summary judgment. The case went to trial. All we're asking for is discovery. Um, Wallace v. Jarvis, a 1995 case. Again, summary judgment. The case went to trial because this court found that the defendant had not satisfied all the elements of immunity and therefore the interlocutory appeal was not appropriate.
0: Do you you think that it would be more fair to all the parties to have this matter come be addressed again at summary judgment when the defendants had have, had have have had an opportunity to show that the, they meet all the elements of this uh, the COVID immunity statute
3: absolutely your honor because then we also get an opportunity to gather our evidence and examine our evidence and it's a fair fight at that point
0: how, how do you respond to defendants contention that the immunity is a fiction Um, if the defendants have to engage in discovery um, and and go through a trial?
3: Your Honor, I would echo my colleagues from a different point of view, and that is you have to look at the statute. Um, If you look at the operative language of the statute, it specifically provides an immunity from civil liability. And that immunity is provided only if all three of those elements are met. And the phrase immunity from civil liability is used twice in the course of the statute. And in in this context, I would remind you that there are a lot of statutory, canons of statutory construction at stake here. We are not trying to rewrite anything. We're trying to ask the, the defendant to show that they actually satisfy all three elements. And to read the statute any other way would fly in the face of a number of statutory, canons of statutory construction, including the one that this court is to assume that the General Assembly knew what they were doing and picked the words with care. The one that says that every word should be given effect and therefore immunity from civil liability should be given its real plain meaning, which is immunity from liability, not immunity from suit. Nowhere in this statute does the General Assembly convey an immunity from suit. And in fact, no statute that I'm aware of conveys a blanket immunity from suit. Um, and so I would argue here that the plain language of the statute actually goes in our favor. Because they have to show these things, and you have to give effect to those words. And giving effect to those words, immunity from civil liability is is an accepted legal term. It's not ambiguous. It has a clear and established meaning. Um, There's no interpretation here. And this court itself has held that when the language is plain, there's no judicial interpretation. And specifically, that the court, um, that the, sorry, in C2 Investments, a 2021 case, this court held that we interpret statutes as they are written. We do not rewrite statutes to ensure they achieve what we believe is the legislative intent. So you have to look first at the plain language and only then at the spirit and purpose of the law. And here the plain language is on our side, Your Honor. The plain language is they have an immunity from civil liability, but they only have that immunity if they show that they satisfy those three elements. It's not a blanket immunity, and there's no presumption there. The court, this court should not presume that the immunity exists based on conclusory allegations that it does. Um, and I extend that conclusory characterization also to those affidavits, which again, we think should not be considered. But if they are, I would point out that they are simply a laundry list of all the things that were changed because of COVID with a conclusory paragraph that says, this is all related to Mrs. Land. Um, there are no direct connections drawn in those affidavits between the care, between Mrs. Land's care specifically and specifically the negligent care in the operating room and after and the changes due to COVID in either the institution or in Dr. Lynn, Dr. Whitley's practice. Um, and it, so they're asking you again, I would repeat, Your Honor, to make an inference. And at this stage, at the motion to dismiss stage, those inferences should run in our favor, not theirs. Finally, Your Honors, if you, do, if you do find that this appeal is within your jurisdiction, that there is a substantial right attached, we would ask you to affirm the trial court's denial of the motion to dismiss. For many of the same reasons we affirm, there's, we assert there is no immunity right at all. Um, we would remind you that at the motion to dismiss stage, at the 12, Rule 12 stage, a case should only be dismissed. Um, if there is no, only if the plaintiff is entitled to no relief under any set of facts that could be proven under that complaint. Only if the complaint itself reveals a legal flaw or a fact that defeats the claim, or if the claim itself reveals an absence of facts. Our complaint clears that bar and it should be allowed to move forward, especially in the absence of a compelling argument for immunity. Again, this immunity, which would be very hard to prove at this motion to dismiss stage. Because again, the question of gross negligence, which we have adequately pleaded, is a question of fact that at least should go through discovery and may well have to go to the fact finder in order to be resolved. Um, with regard to the Rule 9 j question, I want to start by saying avoidance of trial is not a substantial right, and with regard to the motion to dismiss under Rule 9J, that is the only right that is at issue. Um, and the, my colleagues have asked for this court's discretion, but they haven't really given a good reason why you should extend it to Rule 9J. Uh, and this court has not shown a history of extending discretion to appeals under Rule 9J. But if you do, in your discretion, elect to consider the Rule 9J motion to dismiss, We repeat our assertion from the briefing that our certification is sufficient. Rule 9j requires that any complaint alleging medical malpractice by a healthcare provider shall be dismissed unless the pleading specifically asserts that the medical care and all medical records pertaining to the alleged negligence that are available to the plaintiff after reasonable inquiry have been reviewed by a person who is reasonably expected to qualify as an expert witness under Rule 702 of the Rules of Evidence and who is willing to testify that the medical care did not comply with the applicable standard of care. At this juncture, I'd like to remind Your Honors that the Rules of Civil Procedure in this state are statutory. They are included in the North Carolina General Statutes and they are subject to the same canons of statutory construction as any other statute. My client's uh, Plaintiff certification Uh, which is included on uh, paragraph 76 of the complaint, which is a long paragraph. The certification is only part of it. It's on record page 15. Plaintiff states that at least one medical health provider who plaintiff reasonably believes will qualify as expert witnesses under Rule 702 of the North Carolina Rules of Evidence, reviewed all of the allegations of negligence related to medical care that is described in this complaint and all of the medical records pertaining to the alleged negligence that are available to plaintiff after a reasonable inquiry. This expert is, or these experts are, willing to testify that the medical care complained of did not comply with the applicable standard of care as it then existed in the same or similar communities. That Your Honor meets the bar of Rule 9 j which requires that we certify that an expert reviewed the medical care and reviewed the medical records, and no more. No court, no case in this court or the North Carolina Supreme Court has required more. In fact, the North Carolina Supreme Court has gone the other direction. Uh, In Vaughn v. Mashburn in 2017, at the motion to dismiss stage, the North Carolina Supreme Court declined to dismiss a case under Rule 9j, saying that the complaint was, quote, consistent with the letter and spirit of the rule, and that omission of 9j on a, quote, purely technical pleading error would not satisfy the interests of justice. That is the most recent Supreme Court precedent, and that is the rule that your Honors should consider at this point. Um, the cases that my colleague offered for consideration in briefing are mostly inapposite to, to what is going on in this case. Um, first of all, all but one of them predates Von v. Mashburn, which set a standard. Um, several of them have to do with procedural issues that are not at issue here. About when the the expert certification had to be provided when the expert had to review the case in in relation to the statute of limitations, things of that nature that are not at issue here. And the comments about what should be in the language of the certification in those cases are dicta. They are not precedent, they should not rule. Um, And in fact, one of them is just advice, and it's good advice. A plaintiff can avoid this result by using the statutory language. That's good advice, it's not a holding, it's not a judgment. Um, In Austin v. Husky, which was concerned with wording, Uh, That case, they actually broke the certification into two paragraphs, which made unclear whether it actually satisfied the spirit and the requirements of Rule 9-J, because it wasn't clear that the same person reviewed both the medical care and the medical records, or that both of those people, assuming there were two, would qualify as an expert and would testify. Um, Fairfield v. Wake Med was about the language, it was about one word, but that word, Your honors was significant to the meaning and significant to the requirements of 9J, and what Fairfield certified was that certain records were reviewed, which does not rise to the core requirement of 9J, which is that all records be reviewed. So there's nothing in the the case law that suggests the kind of draconian technical interpretation that my colleague would like you to adopt, and I would point you to Henry Robinson, the North Carolina Court of Appeals case from 2005. Where a statute is clear and unambiguous, the court must give the statute its plain and definite meaning and are without power to interpolate or superimpose provisions and limitations not contained therein. Nothing in Rule 9j requires a plaintiff to specifically and and exactly copy the language of the statute and this court should not impose an additional requirement.
0: And if your honors have no additional questions? We do not. Thank you very
3: much. Thank you. We ask your honors that you uh, dismiss this complaint this appeal as interlocutory or in the alternative affirm the trial court's denial of the motion to dismiss. Thank you.
0: Thank you.
1: Thank you, Your Honors. Uh, if you would please indulge me as I speak quickly now.
0: Well, I, I'm really sorry, but I have a couple questions. Please. Um, first of all, do the allegations of the complaint show that the defendants have met the um, requirements of statutory immunity?
1: The complaint itself? That, well, that that is not this case because we have the record that includes the affidavit. That would be a separate discussion whether the complaint itself does your honor as and i think that segues into the point well, about
0: okay but does the complaint yes or no
1: that is not this case your honor and I, I i would and i i won't i can't give the court a definitive answer on that because that's not what i've been focused on but i would suggest to the court that this goes back to the question do you concede that the care here was directly or impacted by COVID? i think the answer to that has to be yes. It's kind of like asking, "Is the sky blue?"
2: How does that and have if, to be yes? It's supposed to be this particular individual, this patient. How this patient was affected. So, how just because COVID existed, we presume that every patient was but, affected?
1: But your honor, what, what the the challenge here with this legislation, I suggest for the court, is this is new. This is big and this is new. This is not how we do things.
2: So are you, and we, what my question is, are you asking us to presume that any patient who walks into any hospital during the COVID pandemic was affected? Or, or doctors. Or doctors. N- n-
1: doctors no, Your Honor. Honor. That That is not this case. I think it's an interesting question. And I do think it is along the lines of the sky, is the sky blue or not, given the time that we're talking about. But that is not this case. And that's not an issue you need to reach in order to decide the case in favor of the immunity that the General Assembly intended to confer.
0: Well, re- related to your answer, how do you respond to plaintiff's argument that the affidavits shouldn't be considered because they weren't filed in a timely manner?
1: Your Honor, that, that is um, just, uh, so firstly, there's never been any argument about prejudice. Secondly, the notion that these affidavits were provided two days before the hearing is fundamentally incorrect. You look at the certificates of service And the affidavits were in fact provided six days with the motions in advance of the hearing because of the the technical requirement of rule six that intervening weekends be excluded. Under the rule itself, it was four days. And so one day out of time. But they were accepted and considered by the court. Plaintiffs at uh, page nine of their briefing acknowledged that. The order at record page 191 expresses that clearly, that it, the affidavits were considered. Um, Your Honor, and that, that is an issue of discretion for the trial court, and the trial court exercised its discretion as it did, and we are here. Um, Your Honor, I would just underscore that this is new, and courts don't do new, and they. I understand that. That's not the way courts operate. They do new, and they decided what was necessary in this moment. And Your Honor, to the question about paragraphs 26 and 27 of the complaint, and whether they can constitute gross negligence, as Your Honor noted, this is a medical malpractice case. They had the medical records. And this is what we get. We get paragraphs 26 and 27, which at most are inadvertence, medical negligence, nothing like what this court requires to establish entitlement to the relief under gross negligence. Oh, well,
2: isn't gross negligence something that should be decided after all of the evidence is considered, like at summary judgment, not at a motion to dismiss? Because wouldn't it require a heightened level of pleading?
1: Your Honor, not in this instance, and that would be inconsistent with this court's law. The gross negligence in the immunity setting is something that must be pled with real facts, just like in the public official setting. You must plead with real facts in order to peel away the immunity provided. And one final point on Shannon versus Teston, I'm just baffled and scratching my head as to how there can be the assertion that Shannon versus Teston doesn't control here on the issue of good faith. The statute um, says at subparagraph A3, providing health care services in good faith. The statute at question, which Judge Dietz issued the decision in Shannon versus Teston on, uh, 90-21.22, subparagraph F, there's immunity where activities conducted in good faith.
0: You are over three minutes yes. into over your time.
1: Thank you, Your Honor.
0: Thank you very much. That, that concludes oral argument in this matter. I want to I thank counsel both for uh, uh, your, uh, you were both very good sports and you had excellent arguments. Thank you.